Hello, and welcome to the Salem at Home podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. If you've got your Bibles, you want to follow along with me this morning, I'll be in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. I'm going to look at this little pair or this little pericope there at the end of Matthew chapter 16, so you can follow along. I'll jump in there in a minute. But we are doing this series called Unspiritual Disciplines, and over the next few weeks, particularly through the month of June, I want to guide you through um, making some moves to move out of just a one-day-a-week faith to an everyday faith. And the way that you do that is you've got to start looking at how everything you do in life can be a, be a part of your spiritual disciplines. See, so often in our lives, we only allocate those disciplines of the Christian faith to those spiritual things we do, like what we're doing right now. Or what you might do for 30 minutes when you wake up in the morning or, or uh, you know, for a minute when you sit around the dinner table at night. We allocate our spiritual lives to just these small little segments. But what I want to do is talk about those disciplines of the Spirit that will help us live an everyday faith. Now, you and I, we all want this type of faith. We want to suggest in our way of life and in our living and where we go every single day that, that we live an everyday faith of the week kind of faith. I am a Christian, and that informs every decision I make. It informs every action I make. It helps me move throughout the week. But in order to realize that goal, you and I have to act on our faith every day of the week. It has to be an active part of what we're doing and not just a short segment of each of our days, but all of our days. Paul has this bold statement that he makes in one of his letters where he says that you and I should be praying without ceasing. Right? Our communication with God and our activity with God should be something that goes on and on and on and on and on and on, never ceasing, waking or sleeping. We have this sort of faith that guides us every single day. So let me ask you this question. What is it that you do that makes you a Christian? Right? Now, this isn't, you know, the good Bible school answer would be like, there's nothing I can do. I am saved by the grace of God. Bless Jesus. That is the answer. That, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm not asking you what makes you a Christian I'm not trying to get to that part of thing. I'm asking you, uh, once you have been made a Christian, once you come into that life, how are you acting on your faith every single day? What is it that followers of Christ do in the world? Like, think about this, for, for example. Doctors. What do doctors do every day? Well, we got a pretty good idea of that. This week, a doctor decided to blast water in the sides of my head at like a rapid speed and only made it worse when, when we did so, right? That's, that's what doctors do, at least in my opinion. But doctors do other things, right? They check your temperature. They, they, they get your blood pressure. They do all these things. So what do doctors do? We've got an answer for that. What do teachers do? Well, we sort of know what teachers do. They teach us reading, writing, arithmetic. They put up with some foul-mouthed kids sometimes and, you know, get snarky back and forth. That's a teacher does. So let me go back to the question. What do Christians do? What is it that Christians do every single day of the week? Now, in fact, you can help me with this. Let me, instead of making it a question, let me hear from you. I'm going to say this phrase, and I'm going to put in a blank at the end of it, and I want you to tell me what you do. Because I am a Christian, I do what? What do you do? Pray. Because I'm a Christian, I pray. What else? I can't hear. You're going to have to <laughs> love. All right, love. That's right. You're going, to, you're going to have to scream it out. If you're online, you can type it at the bottom. What else? Because I'm a Christian, I go to church because I'm a Christian. Help. Serve. What else? Anything else? So we got love. We got serve. We got pray. We got go to church. I might add, you know, we read the Bible every now and then. So, so, 
believe. Okay, so we believe, we have those things. Now, with, with some of these, there's real tangible action. With prayer, I can sit down and I can state things. You know, with going to church, I know what the hour block is with that. Some of the other ones we mentioned, what does it look like to serve? What does it look like to love? What does it look like to believe? How is it that I can put that into my actions every single day of the week? Because these are, foundationally, some of the things that will help us have an everyday faith. But we have to dig in and answer the questions, how am I loving? How am I serving? How am I believing? How am I hoping? How am I embodying all of these Christian realities in my day-to-day actions? And that's what this series is really all about. You know, a lot of times when we answer that question, one of the problems that we run into over and over again is that our answers just rest in the holy things of life. They'll rest in like going to church. Well, I'm a Christian, I go to church every Sunday. They focus on the, the spiritual parts of our life, but they forget the material world that we live in, right? We, we think about the otherworldly that we're a part of, but we forget that we live seven days a week, 24 hours a day in this world. And we have this dichotomy that we set up in our heads where we think, well, if I'm doing spiritual things and if I'm practicing my faith, then I'm starting to participate in another world. When in reality, when Christ came, he helped us to try and dig deeper into this world, to figure out how our feet could get firmly planted here and start transforming the world that is around us right here. Not to neglect the heavenly reality that's out there, but to say that we can experience the resurrected life and the power of God right now, right here. And so we have to do things that start to sort of shift, uh, what is the phrase? Flip the script, right? Oftentimes in our lives spiritually, it's always mind over matter. It's what my soul does and how my soul ascends to God. But today I want us to flip the script where it's matter over mind for just a minute. To where we focus a little bit more on the material that's around us, the ways that we can dig into the mundane realities of our life, like going to the doctor or shopping in a grocery store or, or walking down the road or working throughout the week. Or many of us, you know, some are out on vacation right now. Some of you are looking forward to a vacation in a few weeks. How is it that I can bring my spirituality into that, in my rest? And in a couple of weeks, me and Aaron are going to have a great conversation about that, so you don't want to miss that. But we'll talk about work-life balance and the way in which God wants to transform those areas of our life too. So I hope you'll be here for that. But as Christians, when our practices in the faith only line up with holy things, we're not able to actually participate in faith in the everyday things. So I can go to church in a holy place. I can be with holy people. I can read holy scriptures. I can say holy prayers every now and then. But none of these practices ever touch the ordinary nature of my life. And so I have to expand my practices out. And frankly, I think this right here is the reason why we have been limited in practicing in everyday faith. Because we've only focused on those spiritual disciplines that attach to sort of the holy, exalted life, and we've forgotten about the rest of our life in in this world. We've forgotten about the practices of our faith that are reserved. And this is not what Jesus wanted. This is not what Jesus came to set up. It's not what he predicted, and it's not what he modeled. And in today's reading from Matthew chapter 16, that's exactly what we're going to look at. The way that he came into this world and he started talking to his disciples about something different that he would come to set up. It was brand new. It was different from anything else that they had experienced in terms of religion. You see, ancient religion worked the way we often envision it working today. In the ancient world, there was a group of sacred places. You would go to those sacred places and you would meet sacred people And in that sacred space, you would hear them say sacred words or sacred prayers, or you would hear from them reading sacred texts. 
Right? If you were a Jew, this is the way it worked. You'd go to the synagogue or the temple. You'd meet with priests or rabbis. You would hear from them when they'd read out of the Talmud. Or they might be offering some other rabbinical readings or something like that out of the Torah. But you would hear it. That's how it worked. You always dealt with holy places, holy people, and holy texts. If you were a pagan, this is how it worked. You went to the temple, whatever the temple you chose for that week, it's fine. You'd find some priests there. They'd be offering sacrifices. They may do a few other things that we would think are sketchy. And then you would oftentimes hear them reading from oracles, these sacred texts, these sacred readings that they had. It's sacred places and sacred people and sacred texts. And a lot of you are like, isn't that what we do? (laughs) We're sitting in the middle of a building that doesn't look like anything else that we go into because in some regard we think of this as sacred. We come into this space and we listen for an hour as you drone on and on about Scripture like this sacred text that's in front of us. Isn't that how we experience our faith? And as we look back at Scripture, even though maybe how we experience it in part today, it's not what Jesus came to establish. In fact, the very first time that we see this word church in our English Bibles, Jesus is in a very unsacred place. And I I would say that the fact that we translated this as church over and over and over again, in fact, any of the Bibles that you're reading this morning, any of the translations will say it, the fact that we've translated this word, ecclesia, as church over and over again is part of the problem. You see, church comes from this German word, kirche, uh, which means the house of the Lord. So in in a very literal sense, when, when I say church, what comes to mind or should come to mind from the history of the word is this house, this place, this sacred place where God dwells. And in our scriptures, the way we've translated the word that Jesus originally used there, we've locked it into a place where we think it's a sacred and holy place that we go to over and over again. And the reality is, is Jesus used this word ecclesia, which had nothing to do with a place. It had nothing to do with a sacred space. In fact, when Jesus used this word to describe the community and the movement that he would establish, he was standing outside of a sacred place. And he says, I'm going to establish my ecclesia, and this sacred place will not overtake it. This sacred place will have nothing to do with it. It won't be able to overshadow the, the, the movement that I'm about to start. And that's, that's what we see happening here in verse 13. Jesus is standing, and if you want to follow along with me, he's standing in this very, very unholy, at least from the Jewish perspective, place, Caesarea Philippi. It says in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now Matthew wants us to know two things. He wants us to know that Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, which according to every Jewish custom is a terrible place to be. It's like a good religious person finding themselves embedded in Las Vegas at 1 a.m. on the Strip. Not a good place to be, right? That's what Caesarea Philippi was. It was like an ancient version of Las Vegas. There were all these crazy cults, and there were crazy cults to goats and Bacchus, and they had all these late-night parties and very, very uh, sort of uh, deranged things that they did. But this is what took place in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is standing in front of this village where he probably shouldn't be, Right? If he's a good Jewish man and these are good Jewish men who are following him, they shouldn't be in this place to begin with. But in this place, standing in a place far removed from the sacredness of the temple, Jesus starts to talk about a new thing that he's going to create. And he does this by asking a single question to his disciples. And this is the second part that Matthew wants you to see. Who do people say that I am? When you look around at the world and you're listening to what other people are saying about Jesus, what are they saying, right? 
It's kind of like as Jesus is looking at his disciples, he's wanting the inside scoop, and he's wanting to know sort of the words that are out there about him. And the disciples aren't shy about this. They quickly have lots of things that come to mind, you know, when he just sort of lays that out there. They say this. They say, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And, and you know, as he say this, here's the interesting part. He's in an unholy place, and he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? And they say all this list of holy people. And well, some people think that you're connected with holy people that they could go to and they could see and they could, they could find their lives wrapped up there. That, that's who it is. These are people, holy people like Jeremiah who wrote holy texts. And these are people like John the Baptist who are still alive today who some believe to be the reincarnation of Elijah. And this is a holy person who's gathered down by the river. You could go and see him. This is who this is. And some people are saying that's who you are. And Jesus pushes a little bit further and he points us, points his disciples rather, to this place of making it personal. And I've said this to you before, but Jesus always has this unique way of asking these questions broadly to what other people say. But at the end of the day, guess what? It needs to be your conviction. He points it back to his disciples and say, okay, I understand what they say, but how about you? Who am I to you? Who am I to you? Who do you say that I am is what he comes up with. You spent the most time with me. What do you see when you get up close, when you come into me? Who have I become? Or better yet, who am I to you right now? And this is how our walk with God works. At some point in time, our searching has to turn inward to that deep conviction. We have to own it. We have to be the ones who say, this is who you are to me. Not to my mommy and my daddy. Not to my brother or my sister. Not to the preacher who stands up in front. But this is who you are to me. And Peter's the first one to speak up. I mean, you know, leave it to Peter. He's always the first one to speak up. Peter comes up in verse 16. says, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the one who's come to redeem the entire world. You are the anointed one who is amongst us to show us a different way. And you do it not just from a place of authority that the world would give, but you do it as anointed by God himself to come and to teach us this new path. And Jesus stops him right there, and he says to him, Simon, son of John, or son of Jonah, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed, you are right, But you didn't discover this through holy people. And you didn't discover this through holy texts. And you didn't discover this by going to a holy place. God himself decided to come down and reveal this to you. God himself has met you in this place and has transformed your life. And here's here's what's going to happen because of this. Jesus now predicts something that will take place because of this new revelation that's working in Peter's life. He says something new is going to take place in the world. In verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. Peter is also a word for rock, and so the next word is is kind of fitting here. You are Peter, and on this rock, on this declaration that you just made, I will build my church. There it is. And I'm sure if you're following along with me, whether you're at home or right here, it all says that word right there, church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Right, And, and I'm so glad that Jesus kind of pressed on and said this right here. Because in this moment, Jesus predicted us. He didn't predict this place. He didn't predict the house of the Lord. He predicted you and I. 
He said, upon this single declaration that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, you and I would also be born anew and come into this kingdom. He would build an ecclesia, not a holy place filled with holy people held onto by sacred texts or holy texts, but he would build a holy people. He predicted in this, uh, us in that minute, and he gave us clarity about something that God wants to create in humanity, but humanity constantly gets wrong over and over then. God is going to replace all the holy places with holy people. And even though our English texts say church in this house of the Lord, this original, the original term here, ecclesia, could better be described as a congregation or a community. In fact, if people, and sometimes people talk to me about this, say, what's a good church to go to? I always change the language. I never respond back, and I may have done this to you. I never respond back and say, well, a good church to be a part of is this. I say, a good community of faith to be a part of is this. Because Jesus didn't come to establish a church. He came to establish a community. He came to establish a congregation. And the more that we use that language over and over again, church and church and church and church, we get confused because it's built into the language itself. We think that it's just this place. We think it's just this sacred environment. It's not. You are the ones. Because of your declaration of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you become the congregation. You become the holy people that walk among this world. And this is what Jesus wanted to create in this world. And the beauty of this moment is that Jesus is standing in what would be, at least to the pagans, a sacred place. When he says this, you see, we often look at this text and we say, well, Jesus came to establish a church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And in our minds, we think, oh, he's saying like death itself, hell itself will not come against what God is doing. But in the ancient city of Caesarea Philippi, there's actually a place that many refer to commonly as the gates of Hades. There's an incredibly high mountain in this place, and at the bottom of the mountain is a cave, and in the cave is water. And Josephus actually describes this cave, and he says, you can't even sink to the bottom of this cave with a rope. You won't ever find the bottom of it. It's that deep. You could dip a, a rope in and let it go as long as you want. And so ancient pagans felt this place was a very sacred place that opened up to Hades itself. And so what they would often do is go to the tip of the mountain. There was a little overhang over the, the water hole that was below. And they would sacrifice animals and they would throw them into the ravine below. And if they went into the water and they sank all the way down, then the god of death, Hades, and Hades was appeased. And they were fine. And so Jesus, you can imagine, is standing in Caesarea Philippi with the backdrop behind him of the gates of Hades, a sacred place. And he says, I'm going to create something new that's sacred. And these types of sacred places will never overcome it. They'll never stop it. It doesn't matter if you destroy this tomorrow. It doesn't matter if you destroy all the properties that we have tomorrow. It'll never stop the movement that I'm creating. Because as I create this new movement, it's about people. People who have been convicted that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus never predicted this holy place or this holy space. But Jesus predicted this people. A people who would come, a people who would be grounded in Him. He wasn't trying to build a place where people could flock to and call it holy. He was building up a people in this moment. He wasn't trying to build cathedrals or shrines or sanctuaries that would surround the world or where we could take uh, trips to. He was building a holy people. He had come to build this people up. And it was this people, this community, this new way 
of being that would come through them. And it wasn't this sacred space like the gates of hell, the Panias is what it was actually called there in Caesarea Philippi. It wasn't that that would create this connection with God. It was us. We would be the ones that the rest of the world would see and be drawn to God through. They wouldn't have to come in here and look at the ceiling and in some way be connected with God. They'd be able to look at you and your day-to-day actions and the way you chose to live your life, not just one day, but every day. And when they saw the way that you would choose to live your life every day, they would come alongside and they would want to be connected with God in that way. God came, or Jesus came to show us that God is not just in holy things, but he's in everything. God is in everything, not just the holy things that surround us. He's in our everyday lives. He's in our everyday movements. He's in our everyday words. He's in our homes and he's in our workplaces. He's in our places of leisure and rest. He's in all of these things. And throughout the centuries, there have been men and women who've tried to fix this for us. They've tried to correct the wrongs of the church where we lean a little bit off. But we keep resisting and we keep pulling back and we keep returning to this old way of thinking about it. We relegate our faith to one day a week or one place in town or two or three days or activities that we participate in a week. And in so doing, you and I resist the full life that God wants to have for us, where God has predicted this new people that would come. You know, there are several illustrations throughout history, and I've used this one for you before, but William Tyndale is perhaps one of the best examples of how this comes up. William Tyndale is the man who first translated the Bible into English. The very first English translation of the Bible was the Tyndale Bible. And he actually was burned at the stake for his translation. There were several places in there that that he got in trouble over, but one of the key places he got in trouble was over this word ecclesia. Ecclesia, for years and years and years, had been interpreted as a church, a house of the Lord a sanctuary where people would go. William Tyndale started looking at this word and he saw it in the original language. He said, that doesn't mean a place at all. There's nothing about that word that's connected with place. And so in the very first English translation, it says, I will build my congregation and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And those who were in authority in in that time, they burned William Tyndale at the stake for that move. They burned him because he pushed towards this new idea, an idea that Jesus actually pushed for, of creating a congregation and not just a place. It's never been church. It hasn't been church when Jesus first said it. It wasn't church when William Tyndale, and it's not church for us today. It's a community of faith. That's why it's hard when, when I hear people say, you know, because I'm a Christian, I go to church, or because I'm a Christian, I went to church, or because I'm a Christian, I don't like that church. Like, I don't, I don't like that phrase because it's, it's all locked into a place. And for us, we become a part of a community of faith. We become part of a congregation. There's a new type of existence that Jesus predicted, a new people who will be built. And this is how he goes on and, and says, this is, this is where he goes on to Peter and tells Peter what you and I can do in light of this kingdom. In verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, you will, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, the new community of faith, the new people will possess the blessings of heaven in themselves. So wherever they find themselves, if it's in the mundane world, if it's in the everyday world, heaven can also be found in that place. Wherever they are, sacred and secular will come together. Wherever they are, this world and that world collide together, and we see the intersection of these two realities in you, 
Wherever you find yourself, God will be with you, and you will be God's people, and God will be your God, wherever you are. So we don't just reserve our Christian practices for Sunday. We don't just reserve our Christian practices for prayer meeting or Bible reading or, or the occasional outreach we do. We are the people who practice our faith in everything we do. We find the holy in our trips to the grocery store. We find the holy in our trips at, in our Walmart self-checkout lines. I know it's hard. I've been in those checkout lines. I know it's difficult. We find the holy in our morning rituals of brushing teeth and combing hair, sipping coffee. We find, our, we find God when we travel down the highway, when we're lost in the back roads. We find the holy when the traffic jam happens in front of us. We can't go anywhere. We find the holy in our homes in our playgrounds, on our ball fields. We find the holy in all of these places. We're able to practice our Christian faith in our work and in our play, in our rest, at the beach, wherever we are. We practice our Christian faith when we take a stand for justice and stand up politically. These are not just political activities. These are opportunities to find the divine, to find God in all that we do. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to help us process through some of these practices. I'm going to focus on what I would call the unspiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Those places where you don't often see God and you don't often see the way that your faith connects with God in that moment. And I'm going to try and push you a little bit to start seeing how you might practice your faith in those environments. I'm going to focus on the mundane. I'm going to focus on the everyday. I'm going to focus on what is uniquely unspiritual in our world so that I can help us see how God might show up there. So we can see how we, we can find holiness in our waking and in our sleeping, our walking, our driving, wherever we are. And if we act on our faith in these places, then here's what I promise. I promise that you'll be able to move from a one-day-a-week faith to an everyday faith. I promise that you'll be able to live your life every single day doing what Christians do. Not just dwelling in here for an hour on Sunday or spending a little time in prayer every morning or night, but you'll be able to live every day with every activity, doing what Christians do. And you know, the thing about a day like today, I, it doesn't actually go beyond me to think that today is the day where we remember those who have given all on behalf of our country. And we don't remember those people who gave everything because of how well they marched in boot camp. I mean, it's impressive. It, it is, right? Like, they can get in those lines. It's impressive. They could do that. We don't remember them for how well the target practice was. They're able to hit that bullseye every time. We don't remember that. We don't remember them for the little practices that they do every, every so often that tell us that they're a soldier, the uniforms they wear, the way they say yes, sir, and salute. We don't remember that. We remember them because they gave all. Because what it meant to become a person in the armed services for them was it would take over their entire life. It would take them all the way to the point of death. It wasn't just one thing they did one day a week. And the truth is, is this is what we want to be remembered for when it comes to our faith. Not for just how well we participated in a couple of activities, but how we lived our faith every single day. 
how our faith drove us even to the point of our death. It took a, we took it to the grave with us. And on the day of our death, and I've seen this as many funerals as I've done, there are some people who have died in this world, and families can take great refuge in the fact that they died in service of their faith. Because they know that's not the last time they'll see them. They know that's not the last time that they'll be with them. That there is a great resurrection morning coming. And so here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to think about one area in your life where you can answer the question, because I'm a Christian, I do this. And I want you to fill in the blank with something that no one mentioned in this room this morning. I want you to fill in the blank with something mundane that you would never imagine, whether it's getting stuck in traffic and doing something there, going to the grocery store, reaching out to people over the phone or via text. Because I'm a Christian, I do this. How will you respond? That's your task this week. That's your holy obligation as you go forth from this week. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to get into some specific details, and I'll have some specific ways we can do that each, each week. But this week, it's on you. Where will you find God? Where will you find the holy? Not in holy spaces, not with holy people, not in holy texts, but in the everyday mundane things of your life. Would you stand with me as I pray?